Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 32nd episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. In my continuing series on the history of the human machine, I'm going to look today at Thomas Hobbes, who lived from 1589 to 1679. Thomas Hobbes, like René Descartes before him, sought to develop a universal philosophical system on a mechanical basis, and his works cover an astonishing range of subjects and interests whether they be translations of ancient Greek literature, youthful discourses on classical Roman history, travelogues, treatises on physics, mathematics, religion, rhetoric, political theory, historical accounts of the English Civil War, or autobiographical sketches in prose and poetry. Hobbes is the first thinker I know of to apply the metaphor of the human machine in any systematic way to political theory. Whereas Vesalius and Harvey treated the metaphor of man the machine as an analogy, and Descartes turned it into an equation, Hobbes, for his part, while doubtless subject to the influence of Vesalius, Harvey, Descartes, and Galileo, as well as Epicurus and Lucretius by way of Bacon, Mersenne, and Gassendi, transformed man the machine into a prescription, an authoritative statement of norms, rules, and directions for humankind.
Throughout much of the Hobbesian corpus, the metaphor of the human machine can be found in one way or another, but the most important uses to which Hobbes puts it are political. He doesn't develop an ideal society after the manner of the utopians, whose works enjoyed a wide following in England from Thomas More onwards. Nor can Hobbes be considered the first modern to have considered the state to be a machine. On the contrary, Hobbes bases his analysis of the commonwealth on a highly pessimistic and reductionist interpretation of the life of humans, which is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Indeed, the fact that Hobbes is a pessimist about humankind, whose fearful perspective on the universe is reinforced by staunch Calvinism, helps to explain why he seizes on the metaphor of the human machine as a means of control. Because actually Hobbes, while being a pessimist about human nature, is an optimist where the machine is concerned. It's as if he's taken Plato's body politic, joined it to Harvey's mechanical body, and created a completely new mechanical body politic. For Hobbes, the metaphor of the human machine is therefore a rhetorical device, offering the prospect of tightening up human society, of establishing order to prevent chaos, and investing the all-powerful sovereign with absolute authority in order to prevent what Hobbes fears would be absolute anarchy. Now, I remember doing an interview with Charles Taylor, the philosopher, which is actually part of uh, the Wild Trekker series a little earlier on, and Charles Taylor called this approach or mindset of Hobbes control freakery. I just love that expression, control freakery. Hobbes balances the rights and obligations of the citizenry in a system requiring them to submit to an all-powerful vertical state in a machine-like fashion. He implies that humans should model themselves on admirably rational, well-constructed and regulated machines. Not only that, humans should work like cogs in an absolutist automated state. This may sound surprising to you considering that Hobbes seeks in the machine an individual remedy for the fear he felt throughout his life. But it's only surprising if we forget that Hobbes sees fear as a fundamental and in some circumstances desirable social phenomenon. As a pessimist about humankind, Hobbes compares humans to automata and finds them wanting, since they're not so easily described or regulated. He associates automata not with people as they really are, but with people as he feels they ought to be. Hobbes admires the machine, since it can be taken apart, analyzed, and reconstructed, since it is rationally designed, regulated, effective, and utterly predictable. But his man, the machine, is an intimidating force standing above human society. The Hobbesian automated state wields absolute power, derived in part from the fear it inspires among the citizenry, while the individuals are no more than cogs in unceasing motion. In the face of man's warring nature, the machine offers Hobbes advantages at three distinct levels. First, by mechanizing the platonic body politic, 
Hobbes breathes new life into a powerful political myth from classical antiquity. Second, by applying the Galilean mechanical idea of matter in motion to human society, Hobbes transfers the prestige of mechanistic physics to politics. And third, by serving up the machine, which is, after all, a technological device that efficiently repeats the same tasks, is predictable, can be fabricated, controlled, regulated, and standardized, Hobbes provides a new model for society to emulate. Hobbes is writing in the 17th century, and he is controversial in his own day. He's attacked in England for his materialist doctrine, his skepticism of witchcraft, his determinism, his ethical relativism, his supposedly low pessimistic views of human nature. He's accused of being an atheist whose irreligion has brought on the great fire of 1666, which destroys much of London. Hobbes attacks both superstition and arbitrary rule. He's trying to establish some rationality in politics based on proven methods. Indeed, he's respected for the role he plays in reformulating the theory of absolute monarchy during the Restoration in England. By the end of the 17th century and well into the 18th century, Hobbes's contribution to mechanistic philosophy is widely acknowledged, although this acknowledgement is selective. The price paid for the triumph of the mechanical and mathematical outlook on nature is a violent denunciation of the philosophical materialism at the core of Hobbes' life work. Thomas Hobbes is born on Good Friday, 1588, in the village of Westport, near Malmesbury, Wiltshire. In the verse Life, he describes himself at birth as a poor worm, and then goes on to write that an early formative experience is fear. My native place I'm not ashamed to own, he writes. The ill times and ills born with me I bemoan. For fame has rumored that a fleet at sea would thereupon cause our nation's catastrophe, and hereupon it was my mother dear, did bring forth twins at once, both me and fear. Well, actually, it's during the 
approach of the Spanish Armada off the coast of Britain that coincides with the birth of Thomas Hobbes and his mother's fear, her apprehension at the imminent Spanish invasion and probable conquest of Britain coincides with Thomas Hobbes's birth. So this fear is deeply ingrained in Thomas Hobbes. At least that's what he believes. And by the way, the Spanish Armada didn't make it to the coast, but was instead destroyed at sea. In the face of this perpetual fear, Hobbes seeks the security of order with ever greater intensity. He graduates from Magdalen College, Oxford in his 20th year, serving as tutor or companion thereafter to William Cavendish, later the Earl of Devonshire. It's not known for certain when the two conduct a tour of the European continent. It may have been in 1610 or in 1614. During the 1620s, Hobbes serves as secretary to Sir Francis Bacon. We read in Aubrey's brief life that the Lord Chancellor Bacon loved to converse with Hobbes. He assisted his lordship in translating several of his essays into Latin, one, I well remember, was of the greatness of cities. The rest I have forgot. His lordship was a very contemplative person and was wont to contemplate in his delicious walks at Gorhambury and dictate to Mr. Thomas Bushnell or some other of his gentlemen that attended him with ink and paper, ready to set down presently his thoughts. His lordship would often say that he better liked Mr. Hobbes's taking his thoughts than any of other, because he understood what he wrote, which the others not understanding, my lord would many times have hard task to make sense of what they writ. Despite their affinity for each other, Bacon and Hobbes are as different in outlook as they are in temperament. Hobbes makes no attempt to reconcile knowledge of God with knowledge of nature and of humanity, the way Bacon has done. In Hobbes's work, God makes only a cameo appearance, almost as an afterthought, as an unknowable force in the universe and one whose power cannot be demonstrated. Hobbes may have lacked concern for God because he identifies motion as the perfect condition of all things, and God's motions cannot be apprehended by the senses and are therefore not in the knowable material world. At the same time, Bacon is lyrical in his portrayal of the mission of science, indulging in the use of rich imaginative metaphors, whereas Hobbes is to the point wooden, single-mindedly devoted to the task of providing a grand philosophical system that will explain the universe. It is nonetheless possible that Hobbes owes some of his interest in atomism to his early encounters with Bacon. During the 1620s, Hobbes translates Thucydides' work The History of the Peloponnesian War. Now much has been made of Hobbes's supposed discovery of political realism while steeping himself in this historical work from classical Greece. The modern scholar Laurie M. Johnson has convincingly demonstrated that Thucydides upheld the role of national and individual character, as well as civic-minded eloquence, in determining the outcome events, and thus presents a picture of human nature that is neither wholly free of nor wholly slave to exterior forces. She's contrasted this view with that of Hobbes, whose image of human nature conditions his entire theory. His mechanism 
makes it possible for him to depict men as uniformly egocentric individuals, naturally at odds with one another. In any case, there's no reason to suppose that a translator like Hobbes automatically agrees with a work he or she has taken pleasure in translating and considers important. The 1630s mark a series of formative experiences for Hobbes. His threefold discovery of geometry, contemporary natural philosophy, and Galilean physics doesn't fully account for his interest in mechanical explanations of nature or for the development of his mechanistic philosophy. One key element is missing, his much earlier appreciation for the work of William Harvey, who in 1628, on publishing Motions of the Heart, is the first to depict the human heart as a mechanism. It seems that Hobbes becomes suddenly aware of geometry around 1628, according to Aubrey, or 1630, according to a more recent scholar, in one of those sudden personal conversion experiences that occasionally have marked the history of science. The stark simplicity and rigor of geometry will utterly transform Hobbes's outlook on life. As Aubrey writes, he was 40 years old before he looked on geometry, which happened accidentally. Being in a gentleman's library, Euclid's elements lay open, and twas the 47th element, that is the proposition, at book one. Hobbes read the proposition. By God, he said, this is impossible. So he reads the demonstration of it, which refers him back to such a proposition, which proposition he reads, and so on, that at last he is demonstratively convinced of that truth. This makes him in love with geometry. In one fell swoop, Hobbes is won over to geometry. As he will later write, he comes to recognize that the end of knowledge is power, and the use of theorems, which among geometricians serve for the finding out of properties, is for the construction of problems. And lastly, the scope of all speculation is the performing of some action or thing to be done. Now, mathematical explanation is much prized by mid-17th century scientists. Not only are the subject areas of mathematics greatly expanding due to advances in calculation and analytic geometry, but at the same time mathematics has been applied to open up so many new areas of knowledge and to solve so many scientific problems that it has acquired enormous prestige. Galileo is the first to apply mathematics to an analysis of mechanics. Applied mathematics has brought prodigious feats of engineering and round-the-world navigation, the systematic observation of planets and stars, within reach. Geometric theory does not by any means revolutionize 17th century science. It is rather symptomatic of the heightened awareness of the prestige and value of mathematical explanation and of the desire to break away from the God-centered universe of the medieval scholastics. The ultimate result of this new theory of knowledge is to focus man's attention on the images of his senses, to get him to join these images to conceptions, and so, ever questioning himself, to build up to affirmations and conclusions, thus reaching an understanding of consequences dependent on his own observation and reasoning. It's interesting to note that Hobbes, in seeking to use geometry in order to emancipate thought, 
ends up creating a new counter-dogma with which to attack the old, discredited dogma, at least the dogma that he discredits. After geometry comes natural science. In the prose life, we learn that when Hobbes was staying in Paris, he began to investigate the principles of natural science. When he became aware of the variety of movement contained in the natural world, he first inquired as to the nature of these motions to determine the ways in which they might affect the senses, the intellect, the imagination, together with the other natural properties. He communicates his findings on a daily basis to the Reverend Father Marin Mersenne of the Catholic Order of the Minim Brothers, a scholar who's venerated as an outstanding exponent of all branches of philosophy. Hobbes then returns to England with his patron in 1637 and remains there, continuing to correspond with Mersenne on the natural sciences. Now, I've mentioned how Hobbes undergoes a conversion experience, becoming fascinated with geometry. He then discovers in France the power of natural science and pours over new interpretations of virtually lost Epicurean theories of natural philosophy. Finally, Hobbes owes to Galileo, whom he meets during a visit in Italy, the view that physical phenomena can be universally explained by the theory of motion applied in the light of mathematical science. It's hard to believe that this visit represents Hobbes' first acquaintance with the thought of Galileo. However, he must have heard an earful about the great Italian during his first European tour in 1610 or 1614. Galileo Galilei is one of the fathers of early modern science. His observations with the telescope in the early 17th century reveal many heavenly wonders invisible to the naked eye, such as the four delightfully named Medicean stars or moons of Jupiter, that is, Io, Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede, and the rings of Saturn. Galileo lays down the foundations of mechanics, thereby making the triumph of Copernicanism possible. He shows that nature obeys mathematical laws. He establishes that falling bodies obey the law of uniformly accelerated motion. And Galileo deals a death blow to the physics of the Bible, Aristotle, and Ptolemy. Along with such predecessors as Nicholas of Cusa and Giordano Bruno, Galileo has a big hand in replacing the Aristotelian Ptolemaic view of the universe as spherical, static, perfectly ordered, closed, geocentric, and finite. And he replaces it with the revolutionary new view of a universe at once wide open, boundless, full of irregular features, in constant motion, and lacking any center. Hobbes derives the new idea of motion from Galileo, and this is important. According to the Danish scholar Fritjof Brandt, 
If we were to give a general estimate of Hobbes, it's not difficult to see that the whole of his philosophy is built up on the foundation of one single, quite simple idea, the idea of motion. Well, if you go through Hobbes's work, you realize his entire philosophy, political and otherwise, is grounded in motion. His concepts of liberty, equality, and natural rights develop as a response to the challenge of managing motion in society. He greatly exaggerates the importance of Galileo's achievements in mechanics. It's overly reductionist for him to seize on an abstract principle which can be twisted into a universal theory to explain everything. But the way in which Hobbes applies a geometrical analysis of motion to many branches of knowledge beyond physics can be seen as a passionate tribute paid to the new learning, then quickly spreading from Italy northwards throughout Europe. In the 1640s, while exiled in Paris, Hobbes writes a succession of works, Human Nature and De Corpore Politico in 1640, De Cive in 1642, and De Corpore, which is only published in 1655. These are all planned as parts of an overall philosophical system. In Hobbes's own words, to various matter various motion brings, me and the different species of things, man's inward motions and his thoughts to know, the good of government and justice too, these were my studies then, and in these three, consists the whole course of philosophy, man, body, citizen, for these I do, heap matter up, designing three books too. Well, I don't think that much of Hobbes's poetry. It sounds more like my grandmother's doggerel. She was a great lover of words and of crossword puzzles in the New York Times, um, and her poetry left a lot to be desired. But anyway, these works are very consistent. Hobbes grounded his philosophy in the view that matter in motion is a fundamental, universal principle, or even a law, which can be applied to a wide range of phenomena, whether they be God, the movement of heavenly bodies across the sky, the notion of time, the phenomenon of sound, struggles for political power, human psychology, or the circulation of blood. So, a fundamental, universal principle. In De Corpore, Hobbes recognizes that motion offers a number of advantages. Motion can be isolated as the one universal cause of things known to nature in the place of some other universal cause, such as God. Motion fully justifies the use of geometrical methods. Therefore, he says, they that study natural philosophy study in vain, except they begin at geometry, and such writers or disputers thereof, as are ignorant of geometry, do but make their readers and hearers lose their time. Motion can be broken down into constituent manageable parts and analyzed in terms of quality and quantity in its compound motions. Therefore, he writes, in the first place, we are to search out the ways of motion simply in which geometry consists. Next, the ways of such generated motions as are manifest, and lastly, the ways of internal and invisible motions, which is the inquiry of natural philosophers. Motion can be neatly defined. According to Hobbes, motion is a continual relinquishing of one place and acquiring of another. I find that's a very elegant definition. And finally, motion can be used to explain the universal cause of any phenomenon. For example, study is nothing else 
but a possession of the mind, that is to say, a vehement motion made by some object in the organs of sense, which are stupid to all other motions as long as this lasteth. Motion can be used to explain blood in the human body. Now vital motion, Hobbes writes, is the motion of the blood, perpetually circulating, as hath been shown by many infallible signs and marks by Dr. Harvey, the first observer of it, in the veins and arteries. Motion, for Hobbes, can explain the movement of heavenly bodies across the sky. Now, as I have demonstrated the simple annual motion of the earth from the suppression of simple motion in the sun, so from the supposition of simple motion in the earth may be demonstrated the monthly simple motion of the moon. Motion can be used to explain sound. As Hobbes writes, sound is sense, generated by the action of the medium when its motion reacheth the ear and the rest of the organs of sense. And finally, Hobbes uses motion to explain time itself. Time, he writes, is the phantasm of before and after set in motion. Hobbes doesn't restrict application of Galileo's theory of motion to physical phenomena. He applies this view to motions of every kind, from music to human passions. In Leviathan, a masterwork published in 1651, he applies it to the political challenges of preserving liberty and order under law in the commonwealth. At the same time, Hobbes detects in motion the perfect condition of nature, the very essence of life, a dynamic principle everywhere at work, something to be measured. From this fundamental principle of matter in motion, Hobbes derives a materialist philosophy of mind with three distinguishing features. First, the universe is purely material. Second, the spirit has no incorporeal existence independently of the body. And third, when we assign mental properties to objects, we're really referring to motions of matter. Hobbes is very much a part of the 17th century challenge to the Catholic and Aristotelian synthesis of religion and philosophy. He doesn't detect a divine purpose at work in the cosmos, but presents instead an unsettling, enigmatic God, at a far remove from nature, something the way the gods of Lucretius had been. Like Lucretius, 1600 years beforehand in ancient Rome, Hobbes emphasizes the role of terror in religion. This mechanical materialism, almost but not quite denying the existence of God, puts Hobbes in direct conflict with Descartes, who has sought to rescue the body-soul dualism of revealed religion from the onslaught of 17th century natural philosophy or science. The relationship between the two philosophers, Hobbes and Descartes, is marked by considerable bitterness, as well as the competitive desire both Hobbes and Descartes nourish to be acknowledged as the founder of a revolutionary new mechanical conception of nature. Once Hobbes has asserted this fundamental principle of matter in motion, as well as the resulting materialist philosophy of mind, he needs a means of applying the principle to his study of politics. 
Convinced that much human reasoning is defective, Hobbes borrows what he considers to be unassailable principles from anatomy, mathematics, and physics in which to ground a new political theory, and he does so by adapting an existing methodology for the study of human affairs and the state itself. This methodology is sometimes called Paduan, in deference to the great Italian University of Padua, which has revolutionized the application of Aristotelian knowledge-building principles to the study of medicine, astronomy, and other disciplines. Let's just remember that Vesalius, Harvey, and Galileo have gained much understanding of method from their studies at Padua. Hobbes acknowledges that this methodology is overtly mechanical when he describes it in The Citizen as a process of taking apart and analyzing the commonwealth, much as the one would take apart and analyze the workings of an automatic clock or other fairly complex device in order to understand correctly what human nature is like and in what features it is suitable and in what unsuitable to construct a commonwealth and how men who want to grow together must be connected. So the commonwealth can be understood as a fairly complex device like a clock. Hobbes asserts the principle that all existence can be reduced to matter in motion. He then goes on to assert that the admirably rational machine such as the clock provides an appropriate model for an understanding of human affairs so it's hardly surprising that Hobbes should then seek to guarantee the validity of his knowledge-building process by appealing to the triumphant contemporary prestige of a further principle, namely that geometry is the pathway to truth in all domains of knowledge. In identifying motion as a fundamental law, which can then be applied to such a wide range of phenomena, Hobbes draws attention to the physical, material nature of these phenomena, and in so doing, his one-world, realistic vision denies these phenomena any immaterial character. He implies that the basic mechanics of the body have to be understood before one comes to an understanding of human nature, and this mechanistic model proves so satisfying to him that he claims, rather dogmatically, it has led to the infallible rules and true science of equity and justice, the infallibility of reason, which he then uses to attack previous dogma. Galileo has also claimed that an empirically demonstrated scientific hypothesis is literally true, which gets him into a lot of hot water with the church. In fact, Galileo is under house arrest for nine years in a villa in Arcetri on the outskirts of Florence. In his own way, Hobbes makes exaggerated claims for natural philosophy. Hobbes develops these ideas further, but never deviates from them during the course of his later years, when he publishes Leviathan in 1651 and Behemoth, a study of the causes of the English Civil War in 1668. After returning to the pleasures of translating classical Greek, that is, the two epic poems of Homer, Hobbes dies.
The philosophical materialism of Hobbes comes as a shock to many 17th century readers who are slowly being drawn into the huge collective negotiation of Europe's transition from a comforting, God-centered world to a starker, secular universe. Body, motion, and endeavor are all that we could sense and therefore know, according to Hobbes, and this leaves no room for the Christian doctrine of dualism, of the intangible unity of body and soul. Now, God has been the starting point in the Aristotelian and Catholic synthesis, the prime mover of nature, the Jewish and Christian creator of the universe and divine legislator from whom all things human are derived, the transcendent center of all existence. But for Hobbes, God seems to be a supremely disembodied abstraction. God can be acknowledged intellectually, but never directly known. Hobbes's view of the universe breaks with the body-soul dualism of Christianity, as well as the age-old religious tradition of two worlds, this one and the next. Indeed, he attacks Descartes on this point. By 1655, when he publishes De Corpore, Hobbes affirms that philosophy excludes theology. I mean the doctrine of God, eternal, ingenerable, incomprehensible, and in whom there is nothing, neither to divide nor compound, nor any generation to be conceived. While Hobbes recognizes that natural and human knowledge are closely interrelated, he denies any unity with divine knowledge. He wants to provide human knowledge with a secure, stable, and above all, independent foundation. As such, he is determined to emancipate human knowledge from Aristotle and the medieval schoolmen and to seek inspiration in Galileo. Hobbes follows body, motion, and endeavor in a highly systematic fashion and to their ultimate consequences, analyzing physical phenomena as well as phantasms and images in the mind as motions. Hobbes sees war as the natural or primitive condition of mankind, that in a state of nature there's no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving, and removing such things as require such force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death. And the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I would just like to reiterate this horrifying vision of the life of humanity. In a state of nature, man knows continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Not only is man nasty, for Hobbes, he's fundamentally self-interested and motivated by fear to wage war on others. Hobbes has reason to believe this since he's experienced the English Civil War, at least in exile from France. Having demonstrated what man naturally is, Hobbes then goes on to say what man ought to be. Hobbes considers the universe to be body alone. The spirit has dimensions and is therefore body 
and mental properties assigned to objects are really perceptible motions of these objects. This materialist philosophy is combined with Galilean mechanics in the hopes of finding a universal principle which can explain all physical phenomena. This mechanistic view is clearly pointing in one direction. Hobbes finds a metaphor which will regulate man's natural inclination towards poverty and violence and upon which to build a perfectly ordered society. And this metaphor for Hobbes is the machine. In On the Citizen, published in 1642, Hobbes compares human society to an automatic clock or other fairly complex device. By the time he comes to publish Leviathan, his political masterpiece in 1651, the mechanical metaphor has become far more elaborate. Life is but a motion of limbs, and man is thus a machine, living the way the artificial man, for example the watch, moves itself by springs and wheels. For what is the heart but a spring, and the nerves but so many strings, and the joints but so many wheels, giving motion to the whole body such as was intended by the artificer? The state itself is a machine-like artificial man for Hobbes. Finally, in this machine-like state, countless machine-like individuals have life since they move their limbs, and the state is in turn governed by laws. Lastly, the pacts and covenants by which the parts of this body politic are at first made, set together and united, resemble that fiat, or the let us make man, pronounced by God in the creation. In his interpretation of the human machine, Hobbes combines strands from multiple sources. The state has been a body politic for Plato, but for Hobbes it's something quite different, more of a machine in the likeness of humans, an artificial man or automaton. Human society can be examined using Paduan mythology to take apart and examine the clockwork state. Galilean mechanics provides the universal principle of matter in motion pervading the universe, which can in turn be studied through the application of geometry. The resulting highly complex metaphor of the human machine is simultaneously likened to the body politic, which is an automatic clock and matter in motion, and can be defined in terms of geometrical equations. Well, I wonder, does all of this make Hobbes irrelevant today? Is his clockwork automated state completely out of date? Not necessarily. Many features of Hobbes's metaphor of the human machine can be found present in the world today. He provides a theoretical basis which is later used to develop legal positivism, psychological behaviorism, and artificial intelligence. He brings about a radical revision of 17th century philosophy, partly through his interest in natural philosophy and partly because of his sense of history. Nevertheless, the very fact that Hobbes develops a historical perspective, sometimes called realist, is one of the most interesting features of his political philosophy and possibly the most enduring one. Well, that's it for this episode of The Human Machine in the Wild Trekker series of podcasts. 
Next time, we're going to look at a completely different figure in 17th century philosophy, that is Leibniz. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works, from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And evidencia is the Latin word for evidence, a very important word throughout the early scientific revolution, and it's spelt with an N as in November, and also a T, not a C. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Demel on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs, all rights reserved. Mm -hmm.